Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the authors of Busted, A Tale of Corruption and Betrayal in the City of Brotherly Love, Wendy Ruderman and Barbara Laker. Our guests are Barbara Laker and Wendy Ruderman, and they are the authors of this book, Busted, A Tale of Corruption and Betrayal in the City of Brotherly Love. Um, Wendy, we'll start with you. Uh, what's the book about? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. A lot of people, it's a, it is about, um, it's about betrayal, it's about revenge, it's about uh, the city, it's about the newspaper industry, it's about Barbara and Laker, Barbara and myself, our friendship. Um, it's, a, it's really, um, people who've read it say that they're not sure what to ex expect when going in, but they find that it's full of surprises. But it is the story behind the story of um, our investigative piece, Tainted Justice, that was in the Philadelphia Daily News um, and ran through it about 10 months. So it takes you behind the scenes of, of that unfolding series. At the same time, it tells the story of uh, against the backdrop of the flailing newspaper industry. So the lack of resources, the bankruptcy, so we are uh, simultaneously almost telling two stories at the same time um, and giving you a window into how we do our work and the relationship between us and how that impacted our work. And So it's, it's a lot of things to a lot of different people, I suppose. Barbara, for people who might not remember, what was the story that you started off with with this book? Um, the story was the Tainted Justice series, which was a story of police corruption within a narcotic squad in the Philadelphia Police Department. And it started with us looking at or talking to one convicted drug dealer who became a drug informant who told us about um, how he was working with this one cop and the cop allegedly lied on search warrants to get in homes. But then after we started with that, we got tips that really took the story in a, in a much bigger direction. And we found out that this narcotic squad had raided bodegas across the city and all four corners of the city and gone in there and smashed the video surveillance cameras, ripped out the wires. And then according to all these merchants that we found, in total there were like 22 at the end, that they all said that the cops, after they had smashed the cameras and taken out the wires, that they looted the stores. These were hardworking immigrants who had the stores, looted them of money, batteries, cell phone minutes, and um, helped themselves to food and drinks. And Eat then, sandwiches. And sandwiches. They would right. eat, like they would make themselves deli sandwiches in the bodega. And then from there, we, we had tip early on that one of the officers within this squad allegedly sexually assaulted women during drug raids. And so that probably took the, the most time of everything that we looked at because we had to 
try to find these women and we had no names or addresses or anything. So we went door to door for the whole series. We were in like really kind of rough neighborhoods of the city going door to door, knocking on doors and trying to track people down. Can you explain what that's like? Because you describe a couple of scenes of just going up to a, knocking on a door of a house that you know is a drug house. And what do you say when they answer the door? Um, well, you know, it's funny. Well, Barbara has this technique that always gets her in the door. Um, I, I do this thing where if someone opens a door, the first thing I do as soon as the door opens is I stick out my hand and I say, hi, I'm Barbara with the Daily News. They never shut the door on my hand. And then they're kind of curious why I'm there. And I just told them really briefly, if it was safe for we were tracking down drug dealers or whatever, I'd say, um, we're doing a story that's looking into allegations of police corruption and they let me in every single door. I think the only door I didn't get in was, it was a pit bull came to the door and was like kind of, you know, lurching towards me. I didn't go in that door. But everyone else let us in. I don't think we're intimidating people. And we, you know, we're, we're not judgmental and we just wanted to talk to people about what had happened to them. And I think people, I always say that even if people have just an eighth grade education, they can tell if you really care. And if you're there doing your job, just doing a job, or you genuinely care about people, their lives, and what has happened to them. Yeah. And so they were open to us. Well, also, they didn't really have a reason to fear us because a lot of them believed that even though they were drug dealers, their case was bogus, right? I mean, always drug dealers say, like, I didn't do it. But this, they, these drug dealers, a lot of them were really comical, like, to... Um, you know, knock on their door and say, we, we just want to talk to you about what happened during the raid. And then they would say, you know, listen, the search warrant said that I sold heroin with a smiley face on it, but I've never <laughs> sold heroin with a smiley face. I've always used the skull stamp, the skull stamp, you know. So it was almost like, to me, like I had to sort of keep a straight face during it. So it was like, yeah. So in the beginning, the series was very unpopular with the police department and with a lot of more conservative people, I would say, because they felt like, the you know the means justified the ends. They were they were locking up drug dealers. These were drug dealers, and basically, our work we were uh, we a lot of drug dealers got off the hook. Especially this one um, guy named Pooh Bear, who was definitely a drug dealer, no question. And um, the feds had to let him go because the search warrant was completely fabricated. They didn't have the right description of him. Um, the feds couldn't prosecute him even though everybody knew he was a drug dealer. So um, I remember being really upset about that and feeling like guilty about that. And I had called a police source who's in the book. We call him Ray in the book. And he was in the narcotics uh, unit. And uh, I said, you know, I just can't sleep at night, like, knowing this drug dealer's back out on the street. And he lived across the street from an elementary school. And I have kids. I had kids. I have kids in elementary school right now. Um, they were even younger then. But I said, I feel really bad about this. And he said, listen, you didn't do this. The cops did it. And if, if they did it the right way, this wouldn't be happening right now. And if he's truly a drug dealer, they'll get him again. But... Many people in the beginning, we got a lot of pushback on the series because people felt like, what's the big deal? We're arresting drug dealers. And how we do it, it was kind of like a few good men, like, you know, you don't want to know the truth or you can't handle the truth, you know. But we felt strongly that it was a slippery slope, that if you, if you start lying, um, 
if the very people who are supposed to uphold the law break it to enforce it, like where are we as a society? Like we felt strong about that. Did you have the same type of qualms about knowing that your story was letting Oh, definitely. I felt really, really, really guilty. I mean, I went back to Pooh Bear's house and <laughs> talked to his mom, and it was clear. I mean, it was a drug house, and she told me that she didn't know what Pooh Bear and the brother were doing on the third floor. But you knew what was, I mean, you know, she had one, like, rickety chair that was, like, I could barely sit on. And, and she said, look, I just didn't ask questions. I didn't no. And with Pooh Bear, there was three strikes you're out. And he, that was Pooh Bear. I mean, he was going to serve like a long, long, I think long it was time. 25 to life, right? Yeah, it was he was going to serve up to life in prison for this drug case. And then he walked. And I remember the night Wendy and I were at the office and we learned that he was getting out. And we felt horrible that this man was, because of our work in a way, I mean, yeah, the cops did, you know, like, there were allegations that they lied on search warrants, and that's why he got out. But if we hadn't publicized it, um, he would still be in, in prison. And I think when, especially as Wendy said, when a drug dealer's right across the street from an elementary school, you feel bad because mm -hmm. we've talked to kids and parents who say, who live in drug neighborhoods and say, look, my child can't even walk to school safely without walking past drug dealers right. and being yeah. scared they're going to get shot in a, by a stray bullet. And in this city, there have been kids like um, who have been shot and killed by warring drug dealers outside of school. So I think we took that very hard, and we knew that this was something that didn't make us feel good, but it was something that the cops had done, allegedly, that had freed this man and freed other drug dealers. Well, you're investigative reporters, so did you, did you find that by doing these stories it made it harder for you to get cooperation from cops when you wanted to deal with them in the future? No, well, no, not at all, actually. No, like, know. obviously the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, those officers are, you know, will not really return our phone calls. But <laughs> there are so many good cops in the police department that, and we couldn't have done this series without them. They told us what the right way to do things were, were and what the wrong way to do things. And I think without them, and, and really there are a lot of good police officers who want to help you because bad police officers or police officers who do things wrong and not legally tarnish the whole department and, right. and also erode make the trust. Yeah, they make their job much more difficult because if, you, if you're in these communities, you need the people in the communities to help you solve crimes, to tell you things, to trust you. So if you have a few bad apples that are kind of tainting the whole thing, it's, problems, it's a problem for you as the good cop. So we found that we got a lot of help, surprise, right. you know, from the inside, from people who felt like, let's clean this up, but do it on the sly because they were worried about losing their jobs or putting their lives in danger. I mean, yeah. some of the cops that came and helped us, they were scared that, you know, God forbid they were out on, a, on some drug raid that went bad, that went south, and then they needed to call for backup and people saw them as a snitch or a traitor because they were giving us information and they wouldn't come and help them. So there was a lot of that kind of fear and, and I give a lot of credit to the officers who did talk to us and who did help us. But yeah. Barbara, it says in, in the book that you have been on drug raids. Yes. you were a bulletproof vest? Yeah, what's, powder what's, blue bulletproof vest. <laughs> <laughs> what's that like? 
it's really scary, but it's exciting at the same time. I mean, I did it like way, way before this series, but we were allowed, uh, me and another reporter were allowed to go um, on drug raids right behind the cops. So they would be, they would go in the house first and we'd be right behind them. And it was, it that's going on those raids really got to me because we were doing it for a series about children and how children were affected by the drug war and drugs in the neighborhoods. And I remember like to this day so, um, so I mean deeply that when I went on this one drug raid, it was like 6.30 at night, a summer night, and there were two kids upstairs. It was a real bad drug house and two kids upstairs, one in diapers and one just a little older. And there were drug paper, drug rolling papers all over the place, drugs in the closet, needles everywhere. And they, they were watching um, cartoons and eating Cheerios. And downstairs there was nothing in the fridge except ketchup and mustard and crack vials all off the kitchen near their bikes. And it was a drug house run by a mom and her father. And when the, they brought the, the cops brought the kids downstairs, and when the mom was let out in handcuffs, she didn't even look at her kids, didn't say anything to them. And yeah. she just walked out like it was any other day, and she was leaving her kids like that. And I have children, they're older now, but when I did this series, they were older than these kids. But I left that house in tears because I thought, like, how can that, how can someone do that to their children? So I think it really, it was this story that really, really got to me. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you, you take that home with you and you live with it because you remember those children. Mm. And, and Wendy, you said you once picked up a just freed convicted murderer and secreted him away at your house so you'd have an exclusive story. <laughs> yeah, God. It, you know, that makes me sound so terrible, but but the the gist of it was is um it was a very competitive story. Thomas Trentino had was the longest serving prisoner in New Jersey history. He had done something completely heinous. He had executed two cops in a really bloody, horrific scene in a bar um, before I was, I guess it was before I was born, because I was born in 69, or maybe not, maybe it was like in the 70s. But anyway, it was a very big story in Bergen County, and I was working for the Bergen Record at the time. So the, the idea that this guy was getting out, the relatives of these officers were we were all worked up about it. I think he avoided the death penalty because he was, it was, the death penalty was overturned for a brief time in New Jersey and he sort of slipped through that window. But it was, it was a, it was a very horrific thing that he did and it was like right out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. Like that's how bad it was. Like he stripped the officers naked and then he shot them in the back of the head for absolutely no reason. So, um, because I, even though I worked for the Bergen Record, I was covering Trenton, so I worked in the middle of the state, but I lived close to Camden where he was getting out. We got a tip that he was getting out. So this was a very big story for the North Jersey papers. And at the time, North Jersey papers were very vibrant. The ledger was very competitive. You know, there was a lot more media saturation and it, it was just, it was a different time, even though it doesn't, it wasn't that long ago. It was a different time in newspapers. So I got the assignment to go to this halfway house prison facility where he was supposedly getting out and wait for him there. And so I set my alarm for three in the morning. I went and I got all this coffee from Wawa and um, 
I just sat out there in the cold. It was February, it was really, really cold. And I kept thinking that the tip was wrong because as the time was going by, he wasn't coming out, he wasn't coming out. And I, and I remember I was on the phone with my mother because I was really kind of bored. And you know, it's, you're on a stakeout. And as a reporter, you know, it sounds glamorous, but it's the same thing for a cop or a reporter. It's very boring, you know? And so I'm on the phone with my mom and I'm complaining that, you know, this must have been a bad tip. It's almost eight o'clock in the morning. The sun's up, I'm freezing, this guy, is supposed to be getting out and as I'm yammering on my phone uh, this old man oldish guy white hair big shock of white hair knocks on my door of my car and here I almost missed the moment because I was too busy talking on the phone to my mom complaining and he said um, you know the guards told me that you've been out here all night and that you're looking for me and um, I'm Thomas Trentino and I just I was like wow get in get in and the reason why I thought that we had the wrong date was because there was no other media around and he had and this was going to be like a big media event but anyway so he got in my car and I said well where do you want to go where you know my job was to interview him and I said where do you, you want to go and I said you want to go to a diner and he said no I don't really want to be out in public and then I started thinking yeah I don't want to be out in public with you and attract attention or whatever so my house was only three miles away. I said, why don't you just come back to my house? And people really thought that was crazy. Like, it sounds crazy on the outside. And I happen to also live in my, all my neighborhood, like the police chief of, um, my, of one of the towns, neighboring towns, lives on my block. A lot of law enforcement on my block. Um, and uh, it sounds crazy, but he was, he was older. He, would, he was let out on furloughs for good behavior. Like he, they had deemed him no longer a threat. Um, and he had saved a girl's life while in prison, like while he was out on a furlough. If I'm like going off the cliff, just like reel me in, <laughs> reel me in. Cause, um, but, is, but is, anyway, yeah. Is so. this normal activity for investigative reporters or is this kind of? <laughs> I think for us I it's think normal. it is. I think it's normal. Because people ask us like, well, weren't you scared or isn't, doesn't that sound a little crazy? And to us, it doesn't sound crazy. Mm -hmm. Like I would have done the same thing Wendy had done because you don't, think you just think I've got to get this person I want to talk to this person he doesn't want to go to a diner so why not bring him home he's not going to kill me like you know and that way I have him and I have the story it just doesn't cross our mind I mean every once in a while you drive away from some place where you could have been shot or something could have really happened that's well, not get, good. You get punched in the book. Right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, did. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But I wasn't thinking. I mean, when when I went to Tiffany's house, her house, and she was a drug informant, she had. We looked up her. Wendy and I looked up her record. She had a record for assault, and um, didn't she beat a man over the head with a bottle? Yeah, and right. Rip her, his necklace she off. She hit him in the head with a glass bottle, and then ripped his necklace off of him. So she had quite, she had a violent criminal history, not just a criminal history, a violent one. Yeah, but so and Barbara was like, I'm just going to go stop by the house to talk to her, and we didn't think anything but of it. I didn't like think idiots, anything of right? it. I didn't think, oh, something <laughs> bad could happen. So I went to her house. She wasn't there. But her, if she lived with her mom, and her mom was there, and her mom started talking to me and telling me like how one of the cops had given bail money to Tiffany, her daughter, and was explaining things that did not, you know, look good for either the police officer or Tiffany. And I'm just, she's telling me this whole story, and she's telling me because actually her husband was locked up by the same officer, Jeff Chuddick, and she wanted our help basically getting him out of prison if if the same cop locked her husband up. Yes, so, it's 
crazy. It's a, it sounds very complicated, but anyway, so I'm I'm just she's giving me great details. So I'm scribbling really fast in my notebook, and I'm thinking, oh, this is great, this is great. When do you love this? When do you love this? So then the next thing I know, this Tiffany, she stomps down the steps. She comes charging towards me and says, I'm going to effing kill you. And then she takes her hand and slaps me this side of my face and then this side, I mean hard. Like I felt her ring mark and, and I was going like this to try to like stop like her from hitting me. And I thought, well, what if she has a knife and she's going to cut my face? <laughs> and then she grabbed my notebook and threw it across the room. And I knew I had to, at that point, I knew I had to get out of there. And so I picked up my purse, I ran across the room, grabbed my notebook, and I'm, I'm fiddling with the door, it's trying to get out to the door. My car was parked like a block away. I'm running to the car, and then I hear Tiffany behind me screaming on the cell phone, and I'm thinking, oh my God, she's coming after me. So I'm trying to, we had flip phones at the time, so I'm, I flip open the phone, and I'm trying to call Wendy, and I said, Wendy, Wendy, she just hit me. And yeah, she <laughs> called, well, Barbara calls me, and, and I pick up the phone at my desk, and she's like, she hit me, she hit me, and I hear this woman screaming <laughs> in the background, and I can tell Barbara's running, and I stand up in the newsroom, and I'm like, oh my God, who hit you, who hit you, and everybody just like looks over like oh my god what's going on and I was really nervous and then I stayed on the phone with yeah, you because I said please Wendy stay because you know when you're like really traumatized and I didn't even I couldn't even figure out the key to the car and I couldn't I was close to 95 but I wasn't thinking clearly so I thought I don't even know how to get back to 95 and she's coming after me and she's probably gonna kill me or something and I said um, I asked Wendy I said can you just stay on the phone with me while I get back to 95 and back to the yeah. office and um and and then I told you that I but I said don't worry Wendy I've got the notebook right but then, <laughs> well it became a, it became a joke in between us throughout the entire through the book and everything is that the daily news has no resources so we were always trying to like cut corners and whenever we went to the search warrant room to pull search warrants the courthouse we would bring our own paper and then befriend all these court employees and just be like you don't mind if I make a copy real quick you know we were always doing things like I don't want to say on the sly but definitely on a shoestring and so Barbara was always buying her own pens because we had these terrible cheap pens that the office gave us that they didn't work and they were really the ink would be all crappy and so Barbara would spend her own <laughs> money in the grocery store buying like four dollar or five dollar a pack ballpoint rolly pens that were just like coveted right in the newsroom so I would steal them from her and she would say isn't that my pen yeah. and these pens were like gold for us right so Barbara says to me she says Wendy she said I don't worry I got the notebook I got the notebook but I left my pen in there, and I and I and I later on I think I said, Jesus, Barbara, go back there and get your pen. Go get that pen. So it became like a running joke between With the us, pens, yeah. right? And then after we won the Pulitzer for the series, uh, we were up in competition against these guys in Miami. Was it in Miami? Sarasota? Sarasota. Who they did a really great series, but after we won, they felt like they should have won. But they sent us a joke. They sent us um, a packet of those pens with the ink removed. Yeah, the same pens. Yeah, with the with the ink yeah. thing taken out, and it was quite funny. How did you come across this story in the first place? Well, the drug informant that um, we told you about, he... Yeah, we haven't mentioned him yet, but yeah, Benny, Benny Martinez? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, why don't you say Wendy, because he, he asked for Wendy. Right. When um, 
At the time, I was doing a series of stories about um, police brutality. So I was spending a lot of time in the communities, and I was also working with, I spent a lot of time at the Police Advisory Commission, that sort of like, um, in Philadelphia, that's the right word, right? The Philadelphia, right, okay. Right. They're not affiliated with the police department, but sometimes people who, citizens who have complaints against police officers will go there and file complaints. But they are, they're not supposed to be connected to the city, but they're city funded. So it's kind of like, it limits their ability to do their job because also they're underfunded. And I would argue that that's on purpose, you know? So, um, so the, the staff there has a lot of work to do. They feel very frustrated. So I had a source within there who was sending me stories or sending me people or sending me people would come in aggrieved and he felt like this source within the the advisory commission felt like I would do a better job at getting to the bottom of it I, that there was more power that the paper had more power than he had as an investigator for this for this obscure and underfunded um, board so he would just send me people and one day he called me up and he said I have someone who I think you'll want to talk to he's gonna come over he's gonna ask for you um, his story is way too complicated for me but but you know listen to what he has to say so in that sense I guess the FBI calls that the vouch it was like I had a source already vouching for Benny it wasn't like he just showed up blindly at the door because I think it would have gone a lot differently had he not been first vetted by my source so he came and he asked for me and um, and I sat down and he started telling me this wild story how he believed the police were gonna kill him and um, I ended up asking Barbara to come over and listen in because I felt like if we were gonna take this on I thought it was gonna take a lot of resources and it was gonna be I knew it was going to be unpopular, so maybe yeah. I wanted an ally, you know? <laughs> what was Benny like? He was, I mean, he was very jittery and nervous when he came in to talk to us. Um, he did, when he spoke to us at the paper, he did actually get the cop he was talking about, Jeff Chuck, on the phone, and we overheard that conversation. Um, he was very likable in the beginning, I would say. Um, he had de he gave us details about homes that he had was told to go make buys from. How the system work, the the, the Jeff Chudik and Benny Martinez system. How did they do things? Well, it's, well the system is actually very interesting, and I learned a lot about it. The police department, uh, like when you get caught, when you're a when you're a low level drug dealer like Benny, and you get caught, you're always trying to negotiate or weasel your way. Down, you know, plea down or try to get out of the jam that you've gotten yourself into. So Jeff happened to arrest him for drugs and he decided, Benny decided to flip in exchange for not being dragged into jail. And so once he flipped and became an informant, the police department, there's a whole process where the police department signs you up as an informant, they give you an informant number, they pay you for every, you knock on the door, the police are supposed to be watching you, you're supposed to make a drug buy from the house, you're supposed to bring the um, drugs back to the police officers. The money is marked, so the police give you the money, and then you, Benny got paid for every door knock, and he, if they found guns, he got $100. You say in the book the police department, through Jeff, paid Benny cash for the jobs. He usually got $20 for each drug buy and $150 to $250 for big drug seizures and an additional $100 for each gun. But wouldn't 
word get out pretty quickly among the drug community that there was a connection between Benny knocking on your door and a, a drug raid? Yeah, that's yeah. how the whole thing blew up. Because uh, yeah. um, one um, drug dealer hired an attorney then thought there was something wrong with the search warrant, like it just didn't sound right and that the buy, he said, he claimed never happened, that he never made the buy. And so that attorney, this drug dealer had money, hired a really yeah, good he attorney. Was a big time drug dealer. Yeah, and, and cocaine dealer. And he hired a really good attorney in Philadelphia who hired a private investigator because this drug dealer, Raul Nieves, um, suspected that it could have been Benny Martinez who set him up. And so the private investigator followed Benny and, and filmed him, took pictures of Benny going into a home that was actually owned by the police officer, Jeff Chuddick. So was, he was a rental home. A lot of police officers have businesses on the side, and Jeff had, I guess, I don't know if he had more than one rental home, but he had a rental property, and he was renting his house to Benny. And so every time Benny made money, the money would flow back to Jeff in the way of rent. Is there and a so problem with him renting his house to this yes. informant? Yeah, it, well, it, it's, um, it goes against the department ethics ethical guidelines and it's also problematic because then there was a built-in financial incentive between the yeah. two of them and, and you, a cop can't have a financial arrangement with an informant um, because then they had a you know then they had a reason to try to make money and I think with with Benny the reason why they were lying on search warrants in part was because Benny didn't want people to know that he had set them up so he was setting up people he knew people he people who trusted him in one case someone who was like a father figure to him. So right. he didn't want to make the buy. He knew that there was going to be drugs found in the house in many cases, but he didn't, he wouldn't make the buy because then they would know it was him. So they would just make it up. So but they pretended there was a buy and made the arrest based on pretending would, there was a buy? Well, yeah, say if Benny said, I, uh, Jeff, I'm not going to go to that house. Like right. Say if there's a certain house he didn't want to go to, then um, according to Benny, Jeff would say, well, where can you buy heroin? close by. Well, these are big drug neighborhoods, so you didn't have to go far. So he'd go like a block or two away and buy the drugs from another house. And then, according to Benny, then Jeff would write on the search warrant that Benny bought it from the original house and, and put his, his um, informant number on that search warrant. Right. And in Philadelphia, like the life, the shelf life of an informant is very short for the, exactly the reason you're pointing out. Right. How, how many people can you set up before they know yeah. it's you? Right. So it, informants don't last very long and they're constantly cycling through. But Benny had been a police informant for seven years or almost seven years, mm -hmm. about six, right. seven, almost years. seven years. And, right. and that's in part how they did it. Like he was a drug addict. He knew where drugs were being sold, particularly in the Hispanic community. And so they would just set people up and, you know, everybody was happy. And then some of the money that Benny made went back to Jeff in rent money. Right. You say in the book that uh, Benny liked being an informant because it was sort of a license for him to do drugs or deal drugs? Like the cops gave him a pass on his own and Benny's drug use because he was helping them out? We, we kind of we, came to believe that in writing the book. I mean... We learned that later. It wasn't something that we... I mean, it was as we got to know Benny more and talk to more people about him, um, you know, we learned that, that his drug addiction was part of his downfall. Right, and because because when you're going in to buy drugs, he 
you, I mean, you're an informant, right? So part of your job is to know where the drugs are. And how do you know where the drugs are? You do drugs. So it's this very slippery slope, bizarre relationship between police officers and their informants. And it's a delicate dance there. Do you ever wonder if Benny was just making things up, but that he was not necessarily a reliable source? How could you tell that what he was giving you was accurate? Well, one way we could tell is he gave us addresses of, and clear addresses and to the description of like, oh, there's a big tree right in front of the door, something like that, or it's like got blue trim, whatever. He would tell us homes that were in the search warrant as homes that he made a buy at, where Benny told us he did not make that buy. So when, when Wendy and I went to all these houses and knocked on all these drug dealers' doors, they, either the drug dealer wasn't there because he was locked up and the relatives were there and we talked to them, or the drug dealer had been freed and we talked to them about what happened during that raid and the search warrant. And they would tell us kind of what Wendy said, that they don't, in, um, say if the search warrant said they found heroin bags with a skull on it and they, they sold only heroin with a smiley face or it had a name like heroin on the street in Philadelphia has names like one's even called the Daily News, one's called Homicide and so everything in the, it's a whole enterprise and everything's labeled very clearly so if you sell skull heroin you're not selling smiley face heroin. But, but that said yes Benny was a liar and a lot of what he told us was probably just lies but uh, some of what he told us was true and that part of it we could prove and one thing that we could prove but we could have never written the story if Jeff hadn't taken Benny to landlord tenant court which then opened it up to a public forum so here Benny had eviction papers he had court documents he had to appear in landlord tenant court and then Barbara went and sat in on the on the whole scene and tell him like, yeah, what and the scene was like so like you go into this courtroom and there's Benny, and I'd never met Jeff before that, and he didn't know who I was. And there's Jeff, and they're like, they're pleading their case before the landlord tenant judge. And Jeff and, is the cop who owns the house. Yes, the cop and, who owns the house, and Benny. And he was claiming that Benny wasn't paying him rent? Is that what it was right, about? Right, he wanted to evict Benny because after it all blew up, that that drug dealer knew that Benny was the snitch and Benny had set them up, then. Jeff, according to Benny, was worried that, um, that, say, police internal affairs would find out that he was renting the house to Benny and maybe some other things about the search warrants. So Jeff wanted him out of the house. He just thought he was trouble yeah, at that yeah. point. Jeff needed him out of the house. He needed him right? out of the house. So he took him to landlord-tenant court to try to evict him. Which is just so and stupid. Like, you know, if you're going to do something, like, unethical or, or you know, wrong, like, Take him to landlord tenant court. Like it was almost, it was just kind of crazy. It maybe spoke to Jeff's hubris or his just lack of understanding um, that he would file paperwork against. Yeah. And I don't think he knew. He didn't know at that point when he took him to court that that Wendy and I were lo even looking into this or that I would be in the courtroom. And so in the courtroom, Benny says before the judge, he looks at Jeff and he's like, gets all emotional. Benny's very emotional. Yeah, he, wor he works and it good. Yeah, he cries. Well, most times we talked to him, he was crying yeah. at some point. And he would say, Jeff, look, you know, we were friends, man. Like, how could you do this to me? I was your informant. We set up all these drug dealers. Like, he went on and he said it in open court. And so that gave us, like, evidence that, yes, Jeff did rent the house to Benny, and Benny was an informant because Jeff didn't deny it. And 
So well, we it, also we also knew he was an informant because we had sources within the police department who verified his name and informant number. It, so once we knew he was an informant, once we knew he worked for Jeff, once we were sure he was living in a rental property for Jeff, we were able to write the story. And a lot of people are like, well, how could you write the story on the word of a convicted lying drug dealer? Yeah. And, and, and they have a point, but our argument to that is there was plenty there that, that was absolutely true and we didn't even really need Benny's word. We just use documents and um, kind of what the private eye did for the right. for the um, drug dealer. Tell me about Jeff Kudjik. Kud Chuddick. Chuddick. Yeah. He's he's the villain of the book. No, no. I I, I think that Jeff is a gray character. I think gray. that yeah. um, gray. gray gray gray. I what does that mean? <laughs> that gray. he's complicated. That he's not all good and not all bad. And I think to to point that out, I think that he did rent the house to Benny because he wanted to help him. In the course of working with Benny, did he lie on search warrants and make stuff up on search warrants? Yes. But then there's the, another time later on in the series where you see him, we got a video of one of the store raids of Jose Duran's store getting raided by Jeff and some other cops where you can see them and hear them smashing the cameras and pulling out the wires. And there's a 12-year-old kid in the store, in a store where all these cops have guns drawn, and it must have been very scary for the child. Yeah. And Jeff went up to this child, put his arm kind of around his shoulder, and asked him his name, if he lived in the neighborhood, how old he was, his specific address, and said, okay, you can get out of here. And there was a tenderness that you could see in the video. While they were busy smashing the... <laughs> While they the were store. busy smashing the cameras and, and just fixated on how many eyes there were in the store to get rid of them. And you can see one of the officers looking up at the looking at the cash register, then looking up at the camera, and you can tell they're up to no good. Well, how did the police pick these stores to go in? Did they suspect them of being involved with drugs? Well, this is, they, a, this is unusual, but in, I think in Philadelphia and I guess in Pennsylvania, it is a crime, mostly a misdemeanor, to... Um, sell these little glassine baggies that you see a lot of littered on the ground in bad neighborhoods. They're like little Ziploc bags. Um, to sell those bags if you knew or should have known that they were being used in the drug trade. So how these buys traditionally, how police would bust these stores, they would have to have an informant come in and say, give them money, give the store money, give the store owner money and say, I need 12 crack baggies, like actually articulate it in order for them to then go and raid the store of these baggies and get the person on a misdemeanor or whatever the crime was based on the amount of bags they had. Okay. So the thing about it was, was that this was an elite narcotics squad and they, this was, the mom and pop stores selling these baggies was a very low priority. Um, but this squad was doing, for this, for these squads, there were other narcotics officers who would do this kind of work, but not these elite squads. And they were spending a lot of time, Barbara and I found, raiding these little stores for these baggies. And we were sort of, we sort of like a light bulb went off. Uh, and we were like, why are they raiding all of these, so many of these bodegas? When other squads didn't. Like other squads did one, maybe two a year. And this squad had dozens in a year and that so that made Wendy and I think well what you know if, if, is there something to this like what's going on yeah uh, yeah why were they doing it 
Well, well. <laughs> the allegations are, I mean, clearly they, every store owner we talked to, and there was 22 of them, um, from, from, there was, uh, from all different walks of life in the city, from all four corners of the city, like Korean people, Jordanian people, Dominicans, Dominicans all, we would go in there and we would say, we just want to find out what happened during the raid of your store. And invariably, inevitably, they would tell us the exact same story. And they would say, these officers came in, they smashed or dismantled or cut all of our video cameras, and once the surveillance went dark, they robbed our store of thousands of dollars of cash, because a lot of the stores, a lot of these merchants dealt in cash. They had lottery money, um, cigarette money, stuff like that. And so they had they had a lot of cash around. Rent so they would, money. They, would pay, they wouldn't put their money in banks. So it's kind of like the old school immigrants. So they would keep cash in the store to pay for rent, to pay for all the supplies in the store, the food, the drinks, and so forth. Like the Korean people had it under their mattress, kept like their... Right. The, and yeah. what was sad is like, and so we didn't lead any of these merchants on. We just said what happened during the raid. And they all told Wendy and I the same story. Right. And, I mean, really, almost verbatim, like coming in, smashing the wires, cutting the camera. Sometimes they smashed them with, like, an instrument mm -hmm. or just or just pulled the wires out. But they all and then left the store in shambles Looted with all this the stuff store, gone. Took all the cigarettes. Um, because in, Benny told us, Benny and some other informants had told us that Jeff was always giving them free cigarettes. Like, always open up the back of his trunk and have, like, a whole cart. And know, cell whatever. phone minutes. And they just, yeah, cell phone minutes. They never really questioned it. It was just like, you know. They thought it was a perk of being an informant. And they didn't really ask where it was coming from. Right, like, right. And what was sad is, is one couple I talked to, the Korean couple, she was so nervous when the cops came in because they didn't come in and you they don't come in in uniform and sometimes they just have police on their back and they swarmed into the store and started smashing everything and she thought the store was getting robbed by this group of like six guys and she said she was so scared that she peed in her pants and I mean, these are all the all the merchants we talked to the 22 merchants we talked to they had no criminal record they so they'd never been even charged with a crime and there were no drugs in the store um, I mean we did find other stores where there was like a little pot in the store we didn't even include them in the 22 and they all told us a very horrifying story and some of them even took pictures of the store in shambles after the police officers had left and they all had to hire lawyers because they were charged with this misdemeanor and they found themselves just dragged through the criminal justice system and they barely understood the language, you know, and let alone the language of the legal system. So, but I mean, were they selling these baggies? Like, yes, they were selling these baggies. Um, but I didn't understand, like, why in the city, why can't they just, you know, give a fine for this or come in and say, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm taking these bags. I'm giving you a warning. You can't sell these bags. Because some of the bodega owners really didn't know that they weren't allowed to sell the bags. And others, I think, they knew they weren't allowed to, but they didn't. In other words, like somebody came in to buy them. In Philadelphia, in some of these neighborhoods, you're not going to say, hey, are you buying these for crack? Because you're going to get your head blown off. And you're going to create a problem. You're just, you know, you sell it. It's one of those things. But, I mean, if it's illegal or if you don't want it being sold, I think there's a way to go about it that would be much more cost effective for the city. And then some had tobacco shops, so they, they were legitimate, and they did put, like, they were using the little bags, bags to put tobacco in, 
you know, there were some tobacco smoke shops that we found too. Now, this culminated in a series of articles that were in the Philadelphia Daily News. Right. How much time passed between when you started working on this and when the articles started appearing? And was it the only thing you were working on? For the most part, we yeah. started, well, Benny came to the paper in December of 08, and the first story ran February 9th of 09. And then we worked for the, I mean, most of the stories ran through the fall of 09. Yeah, so it was about how, 10 months. How often did you run stories? A lot. It was a lot. Like, mm. I, yeah, I mean, it was a lot. We, yeah, more than 20 stories ran during yeah, that time. I'd, yeah, I'd say 25. And was it all you were working on at the time, just that Yeah, series? once in a while we would go and we'd be given another daily because we were a small staff. I mean, there's only 16 reporters on the city desk. I mean, the daily news is very thin. So they could spare two reporters just working on this one thing? Well, once we got started and once the, the story had momentum or legs is what we call it, I think our our editors were great to us, and I, they let us take the time to do it. And they knew it was like a lot of street reporting, and they knew we were on the street a lot. But as the stories kept coming, and and it kind of veered, like it t took us different places, they they were interested and they wanted us to keep working on it. But, I mean, we couldn't have done it without the other reporters at the Daily News who kicked in and did maybe two stories a day or three stories a day right, to yeah. make up for what we couldn't do because yeah. we were working on that. But also, this is what we call in the newspaper industry a rolling investigation. So it wasn't like one of those investigations where we go away for a year and then we pop something big yeah. in the paper after a year. This was like we were feeding the the beast, for lack of a better word. We were filling the news hole periodically with stories that had a lot of bang every every more, every more couple of weeks or yeah, every week. Yeah, it was week. every two, every, every week yeah. to three weeks, I would say. You write in the book about the rivalry between the Inquirer and the Daily News, even though they're owned by the same people. Yeah. Um, were you concerned, or did you ever face a time when the Inquirer had a lot more reporters and they just had five or six okay. reporters on yours, uh, on, uh, compared to you two, and that you might lose the story to them? Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely. Um, Bill Marimo, who was editor of the Inquirer and is today, had won two Pulitzers for police corruption. So this was sort of in his wheelhouse, and this was his his passion, police corruption, I would say. And so after we, we began working on it and we ran our first story, they put their best reporters on it to try to catch up with us. And a lot of reporters. Uh, and some, really, they're A-team reporters. Yeah. And we were worried. Yeah, we were really worried. So yeah, we were really, because we knew that the editors told the Inquirer reporters, like, you are gonna, you have to get this story, take it from them. Oh, were, do, yeah. were they doing some of the same things you do, knocking on the same doors, talking to the same people, or...? or? Did you have those people? Uh, well, we were always well, one step ahead of them. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that was the that was the funny kind of. We like got there a was one, out of it. Yeah, there was uh, there were a few days when we were in the. There's a room in the courthouse where all these search warrants are kept in these big boxes, and that's where we had to dig around to find all these search warrants that would give us a clue of what address to go to. And there were some days that we, Wendy and I were in there, we'd open the door and there'd be like six Inquirer reporters in there going through the same search warrant boxes that we were going through. And we thought, oh, we, we were really nervous, but we were at that point pulling search warrants about the bodegas. Um, and they didn't know about the bodegas. 
And and then they would often like sometimes we would kind of chuckle about it because sometimes after they pulled the search warrants and made copies and they paid for their search warrants unlike us who came with our yeah, own paper. Yeah, they went through this whole process <laughs> with the court to pay for it. And it yeah, like, and we like, were kind of like giggling, like you know, don't they know? Like we bring our own paper and just get our friends. Yeah, to copy like we, it for we had us. all these copy machines all over. Like oh, I'm gonna on go different to floors. Yeah, and so but then when the inquiry reporters would go pull the search warrants and pay for them, they would come and put them back all together on the top of the pile so then we could then go back to open their the box that they were just in to see which warrants they they uh, pulled and copied whereas Wendy and I would like shuffle them all up and like yeah, scatter them through the pile when, and when they were trying to follow us they were still looking at the drug houses that Jeff and Benny had raided and we were on to the bodegas so all we cared about was the squad number and whether it was a shop or not and yeah. we were pulling all of those when they were behind us so so we so we didn't want them to know that yeah, we were we looking at didn't want them to see that because the, the address or the name of the business is at the top of the search warrant, we didn't want them to know that we were looking at stores now. So we just would shuffle it all <laughs> back in like we were mixing the deck and then we'd snicker. What was what was the reaction when you started running these stories, both in, among your readers and among police officials? Well, it changed over time. It did in. change over time. Well, the first uh, stories, story that ran about with Benny um, and drug dealers getting out and they let's face it they were arresting drug dealers um, was very unpopular and this was a time in the city where an inordinate number of police officers were getting killed in the line of duty I mean it was a terrible time in the city and police officers really felt under siege and it, it was um we had Cassidy killed um, so so many officers it seemed like one after the other and so this was really bad timing on our part um, and it touched a, a nerve with the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. So we would get threatening phone calls. Um, they put my address. They had they had this website. The police had this sort of I want to say it's like a chat room, right? What would you? Yeah. How would you describe it? Um, yeah, it's like an in-house kind of um, chat room where they kind of complain about things and have a, a rant about something. You sign in with your badge number and such. And back, it's no longer live, but back then we could look at it even though we weren't registered on the site. And they would say, they called us the Slime Sisters. And they right. said, and then Barbara and I started calling each other that. So like now we, we adopted joke. it. Well, now we're in the slice. I said, Hi, slime <laughs> yeah, sister, you know. So they would say on there. A couple of them would say, "Well, I hope those slime sisters get raped and beaten, and call nine one one, and no one comes, and and then um, set on fire. Yeah, and set we up. wouldn't even pee on them. That kind of stuff. And then right. they had my home address on there. Um, and so, and then the FOP held a press conference. And when we went to the press conference. We knew that it was to, to, to tell their side of things and to stand behind Jeff Chuddick and to stand behind all of that, but we didn't quite realize that the press conference was about us until we got there. And it was just the most bizarre thing to sit there and, listen, and, and literally be at this press conference that was attacking us personally and calling us like the only thing lower than a drug <laughs> informant in, in this city is a daily news reporter <laughs> and then all the cops clapping yeah. and everything. And then after the press conference was over, all the cameras swung, uh, swung around on us because Barbara and I, they needed B-roll of us, <laughs> they needed reaction. And we, we again, we were kind of naive. We were like, like wow, well, we didn't know this was going to be like... You know, we it, it became personal in a way we hadn't, we didn't expect um, in the beginning, 
And, and then when Pooh Bear, the drug dealer, got out, um, then there was even more like animosity there that our work was letting out a drug dealer. But then after we moved to the bodegas and we got we wrote stories about the bodegas and had the video online like there was no the criticism just disappeared it was like crickets yeah, yeah you and then when we went on to the um and to the women it, even more like even more so like there was there wasn't really any criticism after the the drug dealer aspect or the pooh bear part of the series right, we only have a few minutes left and i do want to talk about you mentioned you want a pulitzer prize for this can you talk about how you found out or whether you expected to win or not and what, what was all going on there? Oh, my God. We, we had no idea. First of all, usually, like, I mean, we were like the dark horse, the Daily News winning a Pulitzer for investigative a reporting. Tabloid. A tabloid. Do you, know, do you know you're nominated? I mean, is there, like the Academy Awards, there's a list of nominees? Yeah, we knew we were nominated, oh. but everybody gets everyone nominated. gets nominated. Like, a lot of people get nominated. Every paper nominates somebody for a Pulitzer every year. So we didn't think anything, you know, would come of it. Nobody and thought Nobody thought we won. We didn't know because our paper wasn't very politically connected in the journalism world, so to speak. So we didn't get like a heads up at all. Because in the past, like you would hear, like if you were even a finalist, you would, someone on the, the Pulitzer Committee would, would, get, leak would leak it to someone at the paper and say, look, you're a finalist. You're in the top three. You could win. And but we didn't hear a peep. So then we thought, okay, we didn't win. And um, and then Michael Days, the editor of the paper, it's announced at like three o'clock on a Monday in April, and he wanted us to come over and look at the announcement of when the Pulitzer were, Pulitzers were announced. And yeah, the Wendy, website. Yeah, and Wendy and I are thinking like, why does he want us to come over and like see that the New York Times won the Washington Post and. And, and I wouldn't come over, and Barbara was like, like, Michael wants you to come over. And I'm yeah, like, I'm not going over there, like, to be to just have my heart ripped out. You know, why am I, I tried to ignore it, and Barbara's like, he wants you over there. Yes. So then we were standing there, and then at 3 o'clock, one of the editors, like, kept clicking on the Pulitzer website, and it kept crashing because everyone was across the country, across the country was, were looking, looking at it. So she kept pressing the refresh button, refresh button, and nothing was coming up. And then and all of a sudden, an editor across the room stood up, and he said, yes, yes, yes. Because the AP put out an he, alert he was reading winners. a wire story that yeah. said that we had won, and we just went nuts. The whole totally newsroom, nuts. The whole newsroom went nuts. It was like the bad news bears. It was like the <laughs> little engine that could. You know, we just went crazy. People were crying. Yeah, I they mean, were. It was like crying. it was like it was, and it was such a hard year. A year in bankruptcy. A year of financial uncertainty for the paper. And just it was just this emotional, like cathartic euphoria for everybody involved in the newsroom. And then, of course, at the end, we didn't. We got. We had champagnes in a small bottle, but we had no cups because we're the Daily News, so we had no cups. So I took off my sneaker and I drank out of my sneaker. And and actually, there's video was, of it. Yeah, yeah, I drank it out of my sneaker, and it was just so smelly and disgusting. But oh. but it never tasted that good. Yeah, I want to wait for a cup. So uh, as a what do you get for winning a Pulitzer Prize? Is there like a plaque hanging in your house right now? Or well, you what, get what you a little, get? it's a beautiful crystal. Like it's a from, crystal from, from uh, Tiffany's. Tiffany's, yeah. And it has your, your names on it and Pulitzer Prize and for investigative reporting in the year. 
and it's it's just I mean it's really something that you get yeah. that. Well, I had it when I first got it. I had it on my mantle, my fireplace, and then only for a very short time. My kids had a pillow fight and knocked it down, and they chipped it. So it has this big chip in it, <laughs> and so then I put it in my closet on the like somewhere in my my clothes closet, and uh, but. But I did have it out, but I, then I realized, oh, you know, I don't want it to break even more. So how'd you go back to normal, everyday reporting after that? I mean, are you working on other juicy stories like, like that? Yeah. Yeah, we, we're we, working on a series now um, called Perfect Prey. And, I mean, life does go on. Like, you do get to, you know, move on from that. I think that it's something that you always, like, have with you and in your head and in your heart, obviously. But, yeah, we're moving on. What happened to the cops in question in your stories? That's a great question. Yeah. They're on desk duty still. Um, they're still getting paid the, um, their salary, which is taxpayer money. And they pensions. don't have police. They get, will get pensions. They don't have police powers and that they don't, can't be on the street and um, can't use a gun. But they are on desk duty. And, and the FBI, they're waiting, I guess, you know, the FOP says that the, F, that the FBI is, is going to close their investigation and exonerate the officers. And they say they're just waiting for that before the officers can go back on the street. But we haven't heard anything about the status of the investigation. Um, you know, maybe they will go back to the street, but I don't know. We Nothing. They've been on desk duty how long? Like five years now, right? Yeah, because then starting in, I mean, the, they weren't all put on a desk duty at the same time, but it started in February of 09. So it's like, you know, five years now, which is a long time. Mm -hmm. So n no upshot to them for nobody got fired or for, for no. the raids on the bodegas? Did the mayor yeah. or the chief of police ever say anything about this to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, the they held a press conference. They yeah. formed a joint task force um, to investigate it. And even, even um, yeah, the mayor came out and said, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And when the videotape came out, Commissioner Ramsey was like, there is absolutely no reason to cut these video. I mean, everybody, you can't look at that video and not say that these guys are up to no good. That's for sure. And Commissioner Ramsey said it in the paper, you know, when we talked to him. Is this the first book you two have worked on? Yes. Mm -hmm. What do you think? <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot a of lot work. Of work. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we... It yeah, was fun, fun, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. And it's not like you can sit down. And the, the book, the way it is now, was not the way we started out. So you have, like, these rough drafts, but it's not like a rough draft of a story. You've got a whole book. So um, it's stressful, but, they're, you know, it's rewarding. Well, yeah. we are out of time. We've been speaking with Barbara Laker and Wendy Ruderman. They are the authors of this book, Busted, A Tale of Corruption and Betrayal in the City of Brotherly Love. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.